0: Bitch. (laughs)
1: So that's why I feel like I've got to do it right now. He knows he to
2: Three. Let's clear engine twenty one. Do you
1: Oh. <sighs>
3: marketing Hey everybody, stop clicking around, I am in the woods, uh, with some water going in the Only back of everybody house and it. My help let it help us, so we're ready, on yeah, yeah, Carolyn, we the could latest have a big decision by that city council in the coming smash. hours, but first I want to show you some of that damage. damage. Take a look behind me and you can see this entrance right here it has been boarded up. This is why the city
1: imposed a 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew. be lifted. Small businesses in heaven dealing with curfews and a big cleanup i
4: three to speak with a representative today. That's a to
2: the we're yeah, so stress-free. Yeah, the process, right process right was before. amazing, and I would definitely the recommend them. We are not a discount brokerage. These are top local agents that will get you the best results. That shit, Trump, man. That shit ain't flying, man families with mesothelioma is all we do. My firm has been offering a free book on
4: mesothelioma for over 10 years. Since that time, hundreds of people with mesothelioma
2: have trusted us to represent them. We have local offices throughout the U.S. and there is no risk to you. Mesothelioma really is all we do. Call us at 1-800-333-4485. That's 1-800-333-4485. Or go to mesobook.com.
3: If you knew then, what you know now, would you have signed the warrant application? No, I wouldn't have. And the reason you wouldn't have is because Mr. Horowitz found that its sculptory information was withheld from the court, is that correct? Among other reasons, yes, So this was interesting today. Former Deputy AG, Rod Rosenstein, talking about that FISA warrant application to surveil. Former Trump campaign aide, Carter Page. Rosenstein on, testifying, bring it, bring it, bring it. the Senate Judiciary Committee investigates how the feds handled the Russia investigation. We're bringing a Republican senator in the room. Mike Crapo from Idaho on the committee. We have the hearing today. What did you learn today that you did not know
4: already, think, Senator? Well, Bill, we've been learning this all the way along, but there were three big takeaways from the hearing today. First... Deputy, one commercial aus- street at Casco, Portland, Worth, and any of these showing. The in motion, motion. motion. and interview with the But then, honestly, no but they could not provide to. a proper password. Secondly, Secondly, one commercial no. street, street We've already not indicated Rosenstein said had he known them about the, bias yeah, and the violations, the extensive violations of law and policy, he would not have signed the FISA warrant application. Well, is that a general lack of curiosity, do you find? or oh, no. Is this just a rubber stamp in Washington, D.C.? I'll tell you what it is. There were 17 serious violations that the IG found, to the point where the IG said in testimony, answering questions from me in a hearing last year, that it was inexplicable. He did not have an explanation. And neither did Mr. Rosenstein today. The fact is, I think it is explicable. The bias was so evident that it was bias that bled into the decision-making of this investigative operation. Yeah, Crossfire Act engaged in kind of an of investigation the of the President Archeo of the United Archeo States and, uh, on false and, in one case, criminally okay. altered evidence so that they could continue to like these operations. This is the kind of thing that Congress would prohibit by reforming FISA and is it uh, that, that America America. cannot be wiretapped yeah. or spied on without their knowledge or without the right to protect their rights in court? Senator, thank you for your time today. Well, uh, I'm sure my time to thank you for yours. What's next, by the way? Can you answer that quickly? What What happens after this hearing? Yep. Tomorrow morning, the, the Judiciary Committee will meet again, and I expect that it will authorize the chairman to issue up to 50 four. more ass- for other witnesses. We're going to dig into the very depths of this so that maybe what I.G. Horowitz said was inexplicable. Will be explained, Senator. We'll see it then. Thank you, sir, for your time today, Senator. Craig. Uh, oh, oh, in compliment of uh, the news now coming uh, off top of the tomorrow.
3: hour, the E.G. in Minnesota to announce the hey, upgraded okay, charges of the fired police yeah, officer, including following second-degree murder, third-degree murder, me. and manslaughter. So as we await that, we look back to this marvelous, large gathering yet again. I'm bringing my colleague Martha McCallum, the story. Seven o'clock. Time every night, Martha. Good day to right. you. And well, it was a it was a calmer night in New York City. And I, I guess the the statement that can be made about that is that curfews work because eight o'clock last night, right at sundown, it went into effect. Not everybody left the streets, but we I know. And I think four, four, five, four, five, four, That was the lesson that we learned from what
1: happened. Say about one, it's nonviolence, and I think all of these things, see the Bill, will give us a night that is relatively peaceful again tonight.
3: Yeah, you know, let's try and hope for that, right? I was interesting to hear yeah, Ben, ben, ben Carson's perspective about 20 minutes ago. And this is a man who's lived it, right? I mean, he's been there, and what what, is, what, he, what he's calling for again, Martha, is honor the legacy of George Floyd by protesting in peace. We saw some of that. We saw a lot of that. But but not entirely. Then he said there will be justice for him and his family. And as we get ready for the Minnesota AG to come out, uh, we'll see if what he's about to announce is satisfactory to many that have taken to the streets.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think justice, I hope,
3: will so, go Jordan, a good
1: distance, calming some of, uh, of care. Care. the people out there. Really the protesters, really obviously, are doing do what they feel is right. They're pushing for these tougher charges that the other police officers as
0: well. Everybody
1: saw what they saw. Everyone saw them looking the their way, And I think that that part of the equation is necessary to getting towards, you know, hopefully. Situation people, you know, like, was how it To the last limits of the night, and gentlemen, give me Jack, give me Jack, flashing, to review their use of force policies with members of their community and commit to reforms. Well, he applauded people taking action to make change happen
2: for young people. And so when I want, when, when sometimes I feel despair, I just see what's happening with young people all across the country and the talent and the voice and the sophistication that they're displaying. And it makes me feel optimistic. Uh, it makes me feel as if you know, this country's going to get better.
1: And that's former President Obama speaking just in the past hour, offering comfort, hope, and saying there is a change in mindset taking place in this country. We can do better. He made three suggestions for police reform, including urging every mayor in this country to review their use of force policies with members of their community. A
2: game changer. We've been in this. Uh, It makes me feel as if, you know, this country's going to get better. Um, That was a young man. That the leaders of the feminist movement were were young people. Leaders of union movements were were young people. The leaders of the environmental movement in this country and the movement to make sure that uh, the LGBT community uh, finally had a voice and uh, was represented for young people. And so when I want, when when sometimes I feel despair, I just see what's happening with young people all across the country and the talent and the voice and the sophistication that they're displaying. And it makes me feel optimistic. Uh, it makes me feel as if, you know, This country's going to get better. Um, Now, I I want to speak directly to the young men and women of color in this country, uh, who, as Payan just so eloquently described, have witnessed too much violence and too much death. And too often, some of that violence has come uh, from folks who were supposed to be serving and protecting you. Um, I want you to know that you matter I want you to know that your lives matter that your dreams matter and when I go home and I look at the faces of my daughters Sasha and Malia and I look at my nephews and nieces I see limitless potential that deserves to flourish and thrive and you should be able to learn and make mistakes and live a life of joy without having to worry about what's going to happen when you walk to the store or go for a jog or driving down the street uh, we're looking at some birds in a park mm. uh, and, and, and so I hope that you also feel healthy, hopeful even as you may feel angry because you have the power to make things better and you have helped to make the entire country feel uh, as if this is something that's got to change you, you've communicated a sense of urgency uh, that is as powerful and as transformative as anything that I've seen Uh, in recent years. Um, I want to acknowledge the the folks in law enforcement that share the goals of reimagining policing. Because there are folks out there who took the oath to serve your communities and your countries, have a tough job, and I know you're just as outraged about the tragedies in recent weeks uh, as are many of the protesters. And so we're grateful for the vast majority of you who protect and serve. I've been heartened to see those in law enforcement who've recognized, let me march along with these protesters. Let me stand side by side and recognize that I want to be part of the solution. Recognize, let me march along with these protesters. Let me stand side by side and recognize that I want to be part of the solution, and show restraint and volunteer and engaged, and listened, because you're a vital part of the conversation, and, and change is going to require everybody's participation. Uh, when I was in office, as was mentioned, uh, I created a task force on 21st century police uh, policing in the wake of uh, the tragic killing of Michael Brown. That task force, which included law enforcement and community leaders and activists, was charged to develop a very specific set of recommendations to strengthen public trust and foster better working relationships between law enforcement and communities that they're supposed to protect even as they're continuing to promote effective crime reduction. And, and that report showcased a range of solutions and, and strategies that were proven, that were based on data and research to, to improve community policing and, and collect better data and, and reporting and, and identify and, and do something about implicit bias and, and how the police were trained and, and reforms to use the, the force the police uh, deployed uh, in ways that uh, increase safety rather than precipitate tragedy. And that report demonstrated something that's critical for us today. Most of the reforms that are needed to prevent the type of violence and injustices that we've seen take place at the local level. The reform has to take place in more than American municipalities, more than 18,000 local enforcement jurisdictions. And so as activists and everyday citizens raise their voices, we need to be clear about where change is going to happen and how we can bring about that change. It is mayors and county executives that appoint most police chiefs and negotiate collective bargaining agreements with police unions. And that determines police practices in local communities. It's district attorneys and state's attorneys that decide typically whether or not to investigate and ultimately charge those involved in police misconduct. And those are all elected positions. And in some places, they're police uh, community review boards with the power to monitor police conduct. Those oftentimes may be elected as well. But the bottom line is, I've been hearing a little bit of chatter in the internet about voting versus protest. Politics and, and participation <laughs> versus uh, civil disobedience and direct action. This is not a either-or. This is a both-and. To bring about real change. We both have to highlight a problem and make people in power are uncomfortable, but we also have to translate that into practical solutions and laws that can be implemented, and we can monitor and make sure uh, we're following up on. So, very quick. Uh, let me just close with a couple of specific things. What can we do? Number one, we know there are specific evidence-based reforms that, if we put in place today, would build trust, save lives, would not show an increase in crime. Those are included in the 21st Century Policing Task Force report. You can find it on Obama.org. Number two, a lot of mayors and local elected officials read and supported the task force report, but then there wasn't enough follow up. So today I am urging every mayor. Make no mistake. What's happening with young people all across the country and the talent and the voice and the sophistication that they're displaying, and it makes me feel optimistic. Uh, it makes me feel as if, you know, this country's going to get better. Um, now, I, I want to speak directly to the young men and women of color in this country, uh, who as just so eloquently described, have witnessed too much violence. And too much debt and too often some of that violence has come uh, from folks who were supposed to be serving and protecting you um, i want you to know that you matter i want you to know that your lives matter that your dreams matter and when i go home and i look at the faces of my daughter sasha and malia and i look at my nephews and nieces i see limitless potential that deserves to flourish and thrive And you should be able to learn and make mistakes and live a life of joy without having to worry about what's going to happen when you walk to the store or go for a jog or driving down the street Uh, or looking at some birds in a park. And so I hope that you also feel healthy, hopeful, even as you may feel angry, because you have the power to make things better, and you have helped to make the entire country feel uh, as if this is something that's got to change. You've communicated a sense of urgency uh, that is as powerful and as transformative as anything that I've seen uh, in recent years. Uh, I want to acknowledge... The, the folks in law enforcement that share the goals of reimagining police, Because there are folks out there who took the oath to serve your communities and your countries, have a tough job, and I know you're just as outraged about the tragedies in recent weeks uh, as are many of the protesters. And so we're grateful for the vast majority of you who protect and serve. I've been heartened to see those in law enforcement who recognize, let me march along with these protesters. Let, let, let me stand side by side and recognize that I want to be part of the solution. Uh, and shown restraint, and volunteered, and engaged, and listened. Because you're a vital part of the conversation. And, and change is going to require everybody's participation. Um, now, when I was in office, as was mentioned. Uh, I created a task force on 21st century uh, policing in the wake of uh, the tragic killing of Michael Brown. That task force, which included law enforcement and community leaders and activists, was charged to develop a very specific set of recommendations to strengthen public. Michigan, let, let, let me stand side by side and recognize that I want to be part of the solution. Uh, And you've shown restraint, volunteered, and engaged, and listened. Because you're a vital part of the conversation, and and change is going to require everybody's participation. Um, Now, when I was in office, as was mentioned, uh, I created a task force on 21st century uh, policing in the wake of uh, the tragic killing of Michael Brown. That task force, which included law enforcement and community leaders and activists, because was charged brother, to develop a block very block. specific set of recommendations to strengthen public trust and foster oh, thing, better working right? relationships between law enforcement and communities you that they're supposed you to wrong. protect
5: you even, have a even as I'm a
2: money, they're what? continuing to promote effective at production you got and, and that showcased mean, a you range know, of solutions and, and strategies that were proven and that were based on data and research $25. to, to that? improve community policing and, and collect better data and reporting and, and identify and, and do something $25. about implicit that? bias in, in, in how the police were trained and, and reforms to use the, the
0: force the police uh, deploy uh, in ways that uh,
2: increase safety rather than precipitate tragedy. And that report demonstrated something that's critical for us today. Most of the reforms that are needed to prevent the type of violence and injustices that we've seen take place at the local level. The reform has to take place in more than 19,000 American municipalities, more than 18,000 local enforcement jurisdictions. And so, as activists and everyday citizens raise their voices, we need to be clear about where change is going to happen. And how we can bring about that change. It is mayors and county executives that appoint most police chiefs and negotiate collective bargaining agreements with police units. And that determines police practices in local communities. It's district attorney, thank you. Long time Iowa, congressman Steve King will we'll soon be out of a job. Military. Those involved in police misconduct. And those are all elected positions. And in some places, they're Witness this, essentially, as a part of the action. With the power to monitor police officers. It's indispensable. It's in it's, it's like it is. as well. The, the bottom line is, I've been hearing a little bit of chatter in the internet about voting versus protest. Politics and, and participation in this, uh, and Michael Brown, so Jameer Rice, big right there. Uh, Eric, uh, Eric, numerous cases. This is a boat cool oh, thing to bring about real zero accountability. Oh, we both oh, have, have to do, not only like predicted and make uh, uh, vigilantes uh, like George Zimmerman, but not only also had to pay to no price to for taking the lives of innocent, unarmed black men. I will say this, though. At this moment, I also want everyone to focus on the Congress of the United States uh, and and, and the fact that it is at this moment uh, when the Congress has within its power uh, to change a number of federal laws and federal policies, which would bring about greater accountability. Changing those federal laws are not the sum of police reform; they're not the complete package of police reform, but but but. Eliminating qualified immunity, changing the standard to bring a criminal civil rights case against police officers, uh, establishing a registry and an accreditation system for both individual officers and for departments, establishing a no-choke national deadly use of force policy. There are a number of things. We have got to focus on, we need law changes and policy changes. Right, you know, right. This is not about a conversation. This is about action. And so much of our work now is focusing on that, and I believe there are members of Congress with, with a couple of specific things. What can we do? Number one, we know there are specific evidence-based reforms Oh, you're mo- taking my seat. Hey, okay, go If ahead. we put in place today, hey, did you get the robot card we build right? trust, save lives, and not show an increasing crime. crime. Those are included okay, in the up. 21st Century Policing Task Force report. You can find it on Obama.org. Number two, a lot of mayors and local elected officials read and supported the task force report, but then there wasn't enough follow-up. So today, I am urging every mayor in this country to review your use of force policies with members of your community and commit to report on planned reforms. What are the specific steps you can take? And I should add, by the way, that the original task force report was done several years ago. Since that time, we've actually collected data in part because we implemented some of these uh, reform ideas. So we now have more information and more data as to what works. And there are organizations like Campaign Zero Uh, and Color of Change and others that are out there highlighting uh, what the data shows, what works, what doesn't in terms of reducing uh, incidents of police misconduct and violence. Let's go ahead and start implementing those. So we need mayors, county executives, others who are in positions of power to say this is a priority. This is a specific response. Number three, every city in this country should be a My Brother's Keeper community because we have 250 cities, counties, tribal nations who are working to reduce the barriers and expand opportunity for boys and young men of color through programs and policy reforms and public-private partnerships. So go to our website, get working with that because it can make a difference. And, and, and let me just close by saying this. Um, I, I've heard some people say that Uh, you have a pandemic, then you have these protests. Uh, This reminds people of the 60s and the chaos and uh, the discord and distrust uh, throughout the country. I have to tell you, uh, although I was very young when you had riots and protests and, and assassinations and discord back in the 60s, uh, I know enough about that history to say there is something different here. You look at those protests, and that was a far more representative cross section of America out on the streets peacefully protesting and who felt moved to do something because of the injustices that they had seen. That didn't exist back in the 1960s. That kind of raw coalition. The fact that recent surveys have showed that despite uh, some protests having been marred by the actions of some, a tiny minority that engaged in, in violence, that despite, you know, as usual, that got a lot of attention, a lot of focus, despite all that, a majority of Americans still think those protests were justified. That wouldn't have existed 30, 40, 50 years ago. There is a change in mindset that's taking place, a greater recognition that we can do better. Uh, And that uh, is not as a consequence of speeches by politicians. That's not the result of, um, you know, spotlights in news articles. Uh, That's a direct result of the activities and organizing and mobilization and engagement uh, of so many uh, young them people know. across the country uh, who put themselves out on the line uh, to make a difference. And, and so I just have to say thank you to them and, uh, for helping to bring about this moment and just make sure that we now follow through because at some point. You know, attention moves away. At some point, protests start to dwindle in size. And it's very important for us to take the momentum that has been created as a society, as a country, and say, let's use this uh, to finally have an impact. All right? Thank you, everybody. Proud of you guys. Uh, and uh, I know that uh, we're going to be hearing from a bunch of people who Have been on the front lines on this and uh, know a lot more than I do about it. Proud of you. Thank you, Mr. President. For everyone that's watching, the President uh, decided he wanted to stay and be a
4: part of the conversation uh, that's going to be led by uh, Brittany Packnett Cunningham uh, with the Attorney General
2: and other leaders. Uh, before we go into that section, I, I want to reiterate the pledge that the President mentioned for mayors. Uh, so if you are a mayor, you can go to Obama.org and you can take this pledge.
4: And I also want to announce that several mayors have said, sign me up first. Uh, and they have all the
2: highlighted my time as, uh, as Attorney General.
1: Some cities investing more. I keep
2: hammering home. Everybody wants to talk about the the riots and able to manage their forces. Um, what advice? Things that don't uh, a civil rights division within. Yeah, Brooke, as of this point, uh, the indication we had was from uh, U.S.
4: Senator Amy Klobuchar tweeting about charges for the three officers. I can now tell you that based on our review of court records that have just posted, all three officers uh, that were seen on that video have now been charged. We're talking about uh, J. Alec Kuhn, Thomas Lane, and Tu Tao. Court records indicate have been charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder. Now, based also on those court documents, we see that the fourth officer, Officer who had previously been charged with third-degree murder. We're talking about Derek Chauvin. Court records indicate that his charge has now been elevated to second-degree murder. So we can confirm that according to court records here from the state of Minnesota, all four officers, Brooke, that were involved in this incident involving the death of George Floyd have been charged by authorities.
1: Josh Campbell, thank you so much for that. And Elliot and Ellie, I want to bring you back in, but let me just sit on that for a second. George Floyd died was killed uh a week ago Monday. And here we are on a Wednesday. And you now have all four officers, right? They were immediately fired. And people in this country were calling for justice. And they wanted these officers charged and now you have that lead officer Derek Chauvin charged with second degree murder. And you have the other three officers as used as you called it to, to both of you um, aiding and abetting second degree murder. So Ellie Honig I, I can't underscore how significant this day is. Yeah, Brooke, and, and I give a lot of credit
2: to the Minnesota Attorney General. I mean, every move that he has made and will make is going to be under an intense microscope, rightly so. And, and people, I hope, understand, to, to bring murder charges and aiding and abetting charges against four people in a week and a half is good work. That is solid work. And it sounds like they have, at least the AG, really has his facts in order a,
1: any better because yeah. the stakes on this trial are good. <laughs> En la zurja ya no veo eso tiene ¿sí? es un hijo de puta Tengo mucho más de un que reparte parte de la puta Yo soy el fui en la ruta En el del ambiente astuta
5: Spiritual gifts versus material progress. The paradox of Christian civilization. The original attitude of the American Indian toward the eternal, the great mystery that surrounds and embraces us, was as simple as it was exalted. To him, it was the supreme conception, bringing with it the fullest measure of joy and satisfaction possible in this life. The worship of the great mystery was silent, solitary, free from all self seeking. It was silent because all speech is of necessity feeble and imperfect, therefore, the souls of my ancestors ascended to God in wordless adoration. It was solitary because they believed that He is nearer to us in solitude, and there were no priests authorized to come between a man and His Maker none might exhort or confess or in any way meddle with the religious experience of another among us all men were created sons of god and stood erect as conscious of the divinity our faith might not be formulated in creeds nor forced upon any who were unwilling to receive it hence there was no preaching proselyting nor persecution neither were there any scoffers or atheists there were no temples or shrines among us save those of nature being a natural man Silent and motionless, exposed to the elements and forces of his arming, for a night and a day to two days and nights, but rarely longer. Sometimes he would charter him without words or offer of the ceremonial filled pipe. In this holy trance, or-
0: I'm
2: trying to watch this movie.
5: worship the savage philosopher the dual mind spiritual gifts versus material progress the paradox of christian civilization the original attitude of the american indian toward the eternal the great mystery that surrounds and embraces us was as simple as it was exalted to him it was the supreme conception bringing with it the fullest measure of joy and satisfaction possible in this life the worship of the great mystery was silent solitary free from all self-seeking it was silent because all speech is of necessity feeble and imperfect therefore the souls of my ancestors ascended to god in wordless adoration It was solitary, because they believed that he is nearer to us in solitude, and there were no priests authorized to come between a man and his maker. None might exhort or confess or in any way meddle with the religious experience of another. Among us all men were created sons of God and stood erect, as conscious of the divinity. Our faith might not be formulated in creeds, nor forced upon any who were unwilling to receive it, hence there was no preaching, proselyting, nor persecution, neither were there any scoffers or atheists. There were no temples or shrines among us save those of nature. Being a natural man, the Indian was intensely poetical. He would deem it sacrilege to build a house for him who may be met face to face in the mysterious, shadowy aisles of the primeval forest, or on the sunlit bosom of virgin prairies, upon dizzy spires and pinnacles of naked rock, and yonder in the jeweled vault of the night sky. He who enrobes himself in filmy veils of cloud, there on the rim of the visible world where our great-grandfather sun kindles his evening campfire, he who rides upon the rigorous wind of the north, or breathes forth his spirit upon aromatic southern airs, whose war canoe is launched upon majestic rivers and inland seas, he needs no lesser cathedral. That solitary communion with the unseen which was the highest expression of our religious life is partly described in the word Boundé, literally mysterious feeling, which has been variously translated fasting and dreaming. It may better be interpreted as consciousness of the divine. The first bande, or religious retreat, marked an epoch in the life of the youth, which may be compared to that of confirmation or conversion in Christian experience. Having first prepared himself by means of a purifying vapour bath, and cast off as far as possible all human fleshly influences, the young man sought out the noblest height, the most commanding summit in all the surrounding region. Knowing that God sets no value upon material things, he took with him no offerings or sacrifices other than symbolic objects, such as paints and tobacco. Wishing to appear before him in all humility, he wore no clothing save his moccasins and breech clout. At the solemn hour of sunrise or sunset took up his position, overlooking the glories of earth and facing the great mystery, and there he remained, naked, erect, silent, and motionless, exposed to the elements and forces of his arming, for a night and a day to two days and nights, but rarely longer. Sometimes he would chant him without words, or offer the ceremonial filled pipe. In this holy trance or ecstasy the Indian mystic found his highest happiness and the motive power of his existence. When he returned to the camp, he must remain at a distance until he had again entered the vapor bath and prepared himself for intercourse with his fellows. Of the vision or sign vouchsafed to him he did not speak, unless it had included some commission which must be publicly fulfilled. Sometimes an old man, standing upon the brink of eternity, might reveal to a chosen few the oracle of his long past youth. The Native American has been generally despised by his white conquerors for his poverty and simplicity. They forget, perhaps, that his religion forbade the accumulation of wealth and the enjoyment of luxury. I'm To him, as to other single-minded men in every age and race, from Diogenes to the brothers of St. Francis, from the Montanists to the Shakers, the love of possessions has appeared a snare, and the burdens of a complex society a source of needless peril and temptation. Furthermore, it was the rule of his life to share the fruits of his skill and success his less fortunate brothers. Thus he kept his spirit free from the clog of pride, cupidity, or envy, and carried out, as he believed the divine decree, a matter profoundly important to him. It was not then, wholly from ignorance or improvidence, that he failed to establish permanent towns and to develop a material civilization. To the untuted sage, the concentration of population was the prolific mother of all evils, moral no less than physical. He argued that food is good, while surfeit kills, that love is good, but lust destroys, and not less dreaded than the pestilence following upon crowded and unsanitary dwellings was the loss of spiritual power inseparable from too close contact with one's fellow men. All who have lived much out of doors know that there is a magnetic and nervous force that accumulates in solitude and that is quickly dissipated life in a crowd, and even his enemies have recognized the fact that for a certain innate power and self-poise, wholly independent of circumstances, the American Indian is unsurpassed among men. The red man divided mind into two parts, the spiritual mind and the physical mind. The first is pure spirit, concerned only with the essence of things, and it was this he sought to strengthen by spiritual prayer, during which the body is subdued by fasting and hardship. In this type of prayer there was no beseeching favor or help. All matters of personal or selfish concern, as success in hunting or warfare, relief from sickness, or the sparing of a beloved life, were definitely relegated to the plane of the lower or material mind, and all ceremonies, charms, or incantations designed to secure a benefit or to avert a danger, were recognized as emanating from the physical self. The rites of this physical worship, again, were wholly symbolic, and the Indian no more worship the sun than the Christian adores the cross. The sun and the earth, by an obvious parable, holding scarcely more of poetic metaphor than of scientific truth, were in his view the parents of all organic life. From the sun, as the universal father, proceeds the quickening principle in nature, and in the patient and fruitful womb of our mother, the earth, are hidden embryos of plants and men. Therefore our reverence and love for them was really an imaginative extension of our love for our immediate parents, and with this sentiment of filial piety was joined a willingness to appeal to them, as to a father, for such good gifts as we may desire. This is the material or physical prayer. The elements and majestic forces in nature, lightning, wind, water, fire, and frost were regarded with awe as spiritual powers but always secondary and intermediate in character. We believe that the spirit pervades all creation and that every creature possesses a soul in some degree, though not necessarily a soul conscious of itself. The tree, the waterfall, the grizzly bear, each is an embodied force and is such an object of reverence. The Indian loved to come into sympathy and spiritual communion with his brothers of the animal kingdom, whose inarticulate souls had for him something of the sinless purity that we attribute to the innocent and irresponsible child he had faith in their instincts, as in a mysterious wisdom given from above, and while he humbly accepted the supposedly voluntary sacrifice of the bodies to preserve his own, he paid homage to the spirits in prescribed prayers and offerings. (laughs) Prenatal Influence. Early Religious Teaching the function of the aged. Woman, marriage and the family. loyalty, hospitality, friendship. The American Indian was an individualist in religion as in war. He had neither a national army nor an organized church. There was no priest to assume responsibility for another's soul. That is, we believe, the supreme duty of the parent, who only was permitted to claim in some degree the priestly office and function, since it is his creative and protecting power which alone approaches the solemn function of deity. The Indian was a religious man from his mother's womb. From the moment of her recognition of the fact of conception to the end of the second year of life, which was the ordinary duration of lactation, it was supposed by us that the mother's spiritual influence counted for most. Her attitude and secret meditations must be such as to instill into the receptive soul of the unborn child the love of the great mystery and a sense of brotherhood with all creation. Silence and isolation are the rule of life for the expectant mother. She wanders prayerful in the stillness of great woods, or on the bosom of the untrodden prairie, and to her poetic mind the imminent birth of her child prefigures the advent of a masterman, a hero, or the mother of heroes, a thought conceived in the virgin breast of primeval nature, and dreamed out in a hush that is only broken by the sighing of the pine tree or the thrilling orchestra of a distant waterfall. And when the day of days in her life dawns, the day in which there is to be a new life, the miracle of whose making has been entrusted to her, she seeks no human aid. She has been trained and prepared in body and mind for this her holiest duty, ever since she can remember. The ordeal is best met alone, where no curious or pitying eyes embarrass her, where all nature says to her spirit, tease love he's love the fulfilling of life when a sacred voice comes to her out of the silence and a pair of eyes open upon her in the wilderness she knows with joy that she has borne well her part in the great song of creation presently she returns to the camp carrying the mysterious the holy the dearest bundle she feels the endearing warmth of it and hears its soft breathing it is still a part of herself since both are nourished by the same mouthful and no look of a lover could be sweeter than its deep trusting gaze she continues her spiritual teaching at first silently a mere pointing of the index finger to nature then in whispered songs bird-like at morning and evening To her and to the child the birds are real people, who live very close to the great mystery, the murmuring trees breathe his presence, the falling waters chant his praise. If the child should chance to be fretful, the mother raises her hand. Hush, hush. She cautions it tenderly, the spirits may be disturbed. She bids it be still and listen to the silver voice of the aspen, or the clashing symbols of the birch, and a night she points to the heavenly, blazed trail, through nature's galaxy of splendor to nature's God. Silence, love, reverence, this is the trinity of first lessons, and to these she later adds generosity, courage, and chastity. In the old days, our mothers were single-eyed to the trust imposed upon them, and as a noted chief of our people was wont to say, men may slay one another, but they can never overcome the woman, for in the quietude of her lap lies the child. You may destroy him once and again, but he issues as often from that same gentle lap, a gift of the great good to the race, in which man is only an accomplice. This wild mother has not only the experience of her mother and grandmother, and the accepted rules of her people for a guide, but she humbly seeks to learn a lesson from ants, bees, spiders, beavers, and badgers. She studies the family life of the birds, so exquisite in its emotional intensity and its patient devotion, until she seems to feel the universal mother heart beating in her own breast. In due time the child takes of his own accord the attitude of prayer, and speaks reverently of the powers. He thinks that he is a blood brother to all living creatures, and the storm wind is to him a messenger of the great mystery. At the age of about eight years, if he is a boy, she turns him over to his father for more Spartan training. If a girl, she is from this time much under the guardianship of her grandmother, who is considered the most dignified protector for the maiden. Indeed, the distinctive work of both grandparents is that of acquainting the youth with the national traditions and beliefs. It is reserved for them to repeat the time-hallowed tales with dignity and authority, so as to lead him into his inheritance in the stored-up wisdom and experience the race. The old are dedicated to the service of the young, as the teachers and advisers, and the young in turn regard them with love and reverence. Our old age was in some respects the happiest period of life. Advancing years brought with them much freedom, not only from the burden of laborious and dangerous tasks, but from those restrictions of custom and etiquette which were religiously observed by all others. No one who is at all acquainted with the Indian in his home can deny that we are a polite people. As a rule, the warrior who inspired the greatest terror in the hearts of his enemies was a man of the murdery gentleness and almost feminine refinement among his family and friends. A soft, low voice was considered an excellent thing in man, as well as in woman. Indeed, the enforced intimacy of ten life would soon become intolerable, were not for these instinctive reserves and delicacies, this unfailing respect for the established place and possessions of every other member of the family circle, this habitual quiet, order, and decorum our people, though capable of strong and durable feeling, were not demonstrative in their affection at any time, least of all in the presence of guests or strangers. Only to the aged, who have journeyed far, and are in a manner exempt from ordinary rules, are permitted some playful familiarities with children and grandchildren, some plain speaking, even to harshness and abjurgation, from which the others must rigidly refrain. In short, the old men and women are privileged to say what they please and how they please, without contradiction, while the hardships and bodily infirmities that of necessity fall to their lot are softened so far as may be by universal consideration and attention. There was no religious ceremony connected with marriage among us, while on the other hand the relation between man and woman was regarded as in itself mysterious and holy. It appears that where marriage is solemnized by the church and blessed by the priest, it may at the same time be surrounded with customs and ideas of a frivolous, superficial, and even prurient character. We believe that two who love should be united in secret before the public acknowledgement of the union, and should taste their apotheosis with nature. The betrothal might or might not be discussed and approved by the parents, but in either case it was customary for the young pair to disappear into the wilderness, there to pass some days or weeks in perfect seclusion and dual solitude, afterward returning to the village as man and wife. An exchange of presents and entertainments between the two families usually followed, but the nuptial blessing was given by the high priest of God, the most reverend and holy nature. Modern perversions of early religious rites. The Sundance. The Great Medicine Lodge. Totems and charms the vapour bath and the ceremonial of the pipe. The public religious rites of the Plains Indians are few, and in large part of modern origin, belonging properly to the so-called transition period. That period must be held to begin with the first insidious effect upon their manners and customs of contact with the dominant race, and many of the tribes were so in influence long before they ceased to lead the nomadic life. The fur traders, the black robe priests, the military, and finally the Protestant missionaries were the men who began the disintegration of the Indian nations and the overthrow of their religion, 75 to 100 years before they were forced to enter upon reservation life. We have no authentic study of them until well along in the transition period, when whisky and trade had already debauched the native ideals. During the era of Reconstruction they modified the customs and beliefs continually, creating a singular admixture of Christian with pagan superstitions, and an addition to the old folklore of disguised Bible stories under an Indian aspect. Even their music shows the influence of the Catholic chants. Most of the material collected by modern observers is necessarily of this promiscuous character. It is noteworthy that the first effect of contact with the whites was an increase of cruelty and barbarity, an intensifying of the dark shadows in the picture. In this manner, the sun dance of the Plains Indians, the most important of the public ceremonials, was abused and perverted until it became a horrible exhibition of barbarism and was eventually prohibited by the government. In the old days, when a Sioux warrior found himself in the very jaws of destruction, he might offer a prayer to his father, the son, to prolong his life. If rescued from imminent danger, he must acknowledge the divine favor by making a sun dance, according to the vow embraced in his prayer, in which he declared that he did not fear torture or death, but asked life only for the sake of those who loved him. Thus the physical ordeal was the fulfillment of a vow and a sort of atonement for what might otherwise appear to be reprehensible weakness in the face of death. It was in the nature of confession and thank-offering to the great mystery, through the physical parent, the son, and did not embrace a prayer for future favours. The ceremonies usually took place from six months to a year after the making of the vow, in order to admit of suitable preparation, always in midsummer and before a large and imposing gathering. They naturally included the making of a feast and the giving away of much savage wealth in honour of the occasion, although these were no essential part of the religious rite. When the day came to procure the pole, it was brought in by a party of warriors, headed by some man of distinction. The tree selected was six to eight inches in diameter at the base and twenty to twenty-five feet high. It was chosen and felled with some solemnity, including the ceremony of the filled pipe, and was carried in the fashion of a litter, symbolizing the body of the man who made the dance. A saw teepee was pitched on a level spot at some distance from the village the pole raised near at hand with the same ceremony, in the center a circular enclosure of fresh cut. Meanwhile, one of the most noted of our old men had carved out of rawhide, or later of wood, two figures, usually those of a man and a buffalo. Sometimes the figure of a bird, supposed to represent the thunder, was substituted for the buffalo. It was customary to paint a man red and the animal black, and each was suspended from one end of the crossbar which was securely tied some two feet from the top of the pole. I have never been able to determine that this cross had any significance. It was probably nothing more than a dramatic coincidence that surmounted the sun dance Pole with the symbol of Christianity. The paint indicated that the man who was about to give thanks publicly had been potentially dead, but was allowed to live by the mysterious favor and interference of the giver of life. The buffalo hung opposite the image of his own body in death because it was the support of his physical self and a leading figure in legendary law. Following the same line of thought when he emerged from the solitary lodge of preparation and approached the pole to dance, nude save for his breech clout and moccasins, his hair loosened daubed with clay, he must drag after him a buffalo skull, representing the grave from which he had escaped. The dancer was cut or scarified on the chest sufficient to draw blood and cause pain, the natural accompaniments of his figurative death. He took his position opposite the singers, facing the pole, and dragging the skull by leather thongs which were merely fastened about his shoulders. During a later period, incisions were made in the breast or back, sometimes both through which wooden skewers were drawn, and secured by lariats to the pole or to the skulls. Thus he danced without intermission for a day and a night, or even longer, ever gazing at the sun in the daytime, and blowing from time to time a sacred whistle made from the bone of a goose's wing. In recent times, this rite was exaggerated and distorted into a mere ghastly display of physical strength and endurance under torture, almost on a level with the Caucasian institution of the bullfight, or the yet more modern prize ring. Moreover, instead of an atonement or thank offering, it became the accompaniment of a prayer for success in war, or in a raid upon the horses of the enemy. The number of dances was increased, and they were made to hang suspended from the pole by their own flesh, which they must break loose before being released. I well remember the comments in our own home upon the passing of this simple but impressive ceremony, and its loss of all meaning and propriety under the demoralizing additions, which were some of the fruits of early contact with the white man. Perhaps the most remarkable organization ever known among American Indians, that of the Grand Medicine Lodge, was apparently an indirect result of the labors of the early Jesuit missionaries. In it, Caucasian ideas are easily recognizable, and it seems reasonable to suppose that its founders desired to establish an order that would successfully resist the encroachments of the black robes. However that may be, it is an unquestionable fact that the only religious leaders of any note who have arisen among the native tribes since the advent of the white man, the Shawnee prophet in 1762, and the half-breed prophet of the ghost dance in 1890, both founded the claims or prophecies upon the gospel story. Thus in each case an Indian religious revival or craze, though more or less threatening to the invader, was of distinctively alien origin. The medicine lodge originated among the Algonquin tribe and extended gradually throughout its branches, finally affecting the Sioux of the Mississippi Valley and forming a strong bulwark against the work of the pioneer missionaries who secured, indeed, scarcely any converts until after the outbreak of 1862, when subjection, starvation, and imprisonment turned our broken-hearted people to accept Christianity seemed to offer them the only gleam of kindness or hope.
2: Hey, buddy.
3: She's not in here, man.
5: Silence the cornerstone of character. Basic ideas of morality. Give all or nothing. Rules of honorable warfare. An Indian conception of courage. Long before I ever heard of Christ or saw a white man, I had learned from an untutored woman the essence of morality. With the help of dear nature herself, she taught me things simple but of mighty import. I knew God. I perceived what goodness is. I saw and loved what is really beautiful. Civilization has not taught me anything better. As a child, I understood how to give, I have forgotten that grace since I became civilized. I lived the natural life, whereas I now live the artificial. Any pretty pebble was valuable to me then, every growing tree an object of reverence. Now I worship with the white man before a painted landscape whose value is estimated in dollars. Thus the Indian is reconstructed, as the natural rocks are ground to powder, and made into artificial blocks which may be built into the walls of modern society. The first American mingled with his pride a singular humility. Spiritual arrogance was foreign to his nature and teaching. He never claimed that the power of articulate speech was proof of superiority over the dumb creation, on the other hand, it is to him a perilous gift. He believes profoundly in silence, the sign of a perfect equilibrium. Silence is the absolute poise or balance of body, mind, and spirit. The man who preserves his selfhood ever calm and unshaken by the storms of existence, not a leaf, as it were, a stir on the tree, not a ripple upon the surface of shining pool, his, in the mind of the unlettered sage, is the ideal attitude and conduct of life. If you ask him, what is silence? He will answer, it is the great mystery. The holy silence is his voice. If you ask, what are the fruits of silence? He will say, they are self-control, true courage or endurance, patience, dignity, and reverence. Silence is the cornerstone of character. Guard your tongue in youth, said the old chief Wabashaw, and in age you may mature a thought that will be of service to your people. The moment that man conceived of a perfect body, supple, symmetrical, graceful, and enduring, in that moment he had laid the foundation of a moral life. No man can hope to maintain such a temple of the spirit beyond the period of adolescence unless he is able to curb his indulgence in the pleasures of the senses. Upon this truth the Indian built a rigid system of physical training, a social and moral code that was the law of his life. There was aroused in him as a child a high ideal of manly strength and beauty, the attainment of which must depend upon strict temperance in eating and in the sexual relation, together with severe and persistent exercise. He desired to be a worthy link in the generations, and that he might not destroy by his weakness the vigour and purity of blood which had been achieved at the cost of much self-denial by a long line of ancestors. He was required to fast from time to time for short periods, and to work off his superfluous energy by means of hard running, swimming, and the vapour bath. The bodily fatigue thus induced, especially when coupled with a reduced diet, is a reliable cure for undue sexual desires. Personal modesty was early cultivated as a safeguard, together with a strong self-respect and pride of family and race. This was accomplished in part by keeping the child ever before the public eye, from his birth onward. His entrance into the world, especially in the case of the firstborn, was often publicly announced by the Herald, accompanied by a distribution of presents to the old and needy. The same thing occurred when he took his first step, when his ears were pierced, and when he shot his first game, so that his childish exploits and progress were known to the whole clan as to a larger family, and he grew into manhood with the saving sense of a reputation to sustain. The youth was encouraged to enlist early in the public service, and to develop a wholesome ambition for the honours of a leader and peacemaker, which can never be his unless he is truthful and generous, as well as brave, and ever mindful of his personal chastity and honour. There were many ceremonial customs which had a distinct moral influence, the woman was rigidly secluded at certain periods, and the young husband was forbidden to approach his own wife when preparing for war or for any religious event. The public or tribal position of the Indian is entirely dependent his private virtue, and he is never permitted to forget that he does not live to himself alone, but to his tribe and his clan. Thus habits of perfect self-control were early established, and there were no unnatural conditions or complex temptations to beset him until he was met and overthrown by a stronger race. To keep the young men and young women strictly to their honor, there were observed among us within my own recollection, certain annual ceremonies of a semi-religious nature. One of the most impressive of these was the sacred feast of virgins, which when given for the first time, was equivalent to the public announcement of a young girl's arrival at a marriageable age. The herald, making the rounds of the TP village, would publish the feast something after this fashion. Pretty weasel woman, the daughter brave bear, will kindle her first maiden's fire tomorrow. All ye who have never yielded to the pleading man, who have not destroyed your innocence, you alone are invited to proclaim anew before the sun and the earth, before your companions and in the sight of the great mystery, the chastity and purity of your maidenhood. Come ye, all who have not known man. The whole village was at once aroused to the interest of the coming event, which was considered next to the sun dance and the grand medicine dance in public importance. It always took place in Midsummer, when a number of different clans were gathered together for the summer festivities, and was held in the centre of the great circular encampment. Here two circles were described one within the other, about a rudely heart-shaped rock which was touched with red paint, and upon either side of the rock there were thrust into the ground a knife and two arrows. The inner circle was for the maidens, and the outer one for the grandmothers or chaperones, who were supposed to have passed the climacteric. Upon the outskirts of the feast there was a great public gathering, in which order was kept by certain warriors of highest reputation. Any man among the spectators might approach and challenge any young woman whom he knew to be unworthy, if the accuser failed to prove his charge, the warriors were accustomed to punish him severely. Each girl in turn approached the sacred rock and laid her hand upon it with all solemnity. This was her religious declaration of her virginity, her vow to remain pure until her marriage. If she should ever violate the maiden's oath, then welcome the keen knife and those sharp arrows. Our maidens were ambitious to attend a number of these feasts before marriage, and it sometimes happened that a girl was compelled to give one, on account of gossip about her conduct. Then it was in the nature of a challenge to the scandal mongers to prove their words. A similar feast was sometimes made by the young men, for whom the rules were even more strict, since no young man might attend this feast who had so much as spoken of love to a maiden. It was considered a high honour among us to have won some distinction in war and the chase, and above all to have been invited to a seat in the council, before one had spoken to any girl save his own sister. You want yeah, I'm going to come very soon. A living book. The Sioux story of creation. The first battle. Another version of the flood. Our animal ancestry. A missionary once undertook to instruct a group of Indians in the truths of his holy religion. He told them of the creation of the earth in six days and of the fall of our first parents by eating an apple. The courteous savages listened attentively and after thanking him one related in his turn a very ancient tradition concerning the origin of the maze. But the missionary plainly showed his disgust and disbelief indignantly saying what I delivered to you were sacred truths but this that you tell me is mere fable and falsehood. My brother gravely replied the offended Indian it seems that you have not been well grounded in the rules of civility. You saw that we, who practiced these rules, believed your stories, why, then, do you refuse to credit ours? Every religion has its holy book, and ours was a mingling of history, poetry, and prophecy, of precept and folklore, even such as the modern reader finds within the covers of his Bible. This Bible of ours was our whole literature, a living book, sowed as precious seed by our wisest sages, and springing anew in the wandering eyes and upon the innocent lips of little children. Upon its hoary wisdom of proverb and fable, its mystic and legendary law thus sacredly preserved and transmitted from father to son, was based in large part our customs and philosophy. Naturally magnanimous and open-minded, the red man prefers to believe that the spirit of God is not breathed into man alone, but that the whole created universe is a sharer in the immortal perfection of its maker. His imaginative and poetic mind, like that of the Greek, assigns to every mountain, tree, and spring its spirit, nymph, or divinity either beneficent or mischievous. The heroes and demigods of Indian tradition reflect the characteristic trend of his thought and his attribution of personality and will to the elements, the sun and stars, and all animate or inanimate nature. In the Sioux story of creation, the Great Mysterious One is not brought directly upon the scene or conceived in anthropomorphic fashion, but remains sublimely in the background. The sun and the earth, representing the male and female principles, are the main elements in his creation, the other planets being subsidiary. The enkindling warmth of the sun entered into the bosom of our mother, the earth, and forthwith she conceived and brought forth life, both vegetable and animal. Finally there appeared mysteriously a Gen A.H.R.G.E., the firstborn, a being in the likeness of man, yet more than man, who roamed solitary among the animal people and understood their ways and their language. They beheld him with wonder and awe, for they could do nothing without his knowledge. He had pitched his tent in the center of the land, and there was no spot impossible for him to penetrate. At last like Adam, the firstborn of the Sioux became weary of living alone, and formed for himself a companion, not a mate, but a brother, not out of a rib from his side, but from a splinter which he drew from his great toe. This was the little boy man, who was not created full-grown, but as an innocent child, trusting and helpless. His elder brother was his teacher throughout every stage of human progress from infancy to manhood, and it is to the rules which he laid down, and his counsels to the little boy man, that we trace many of our most deep-rooted beliefs and most sacred customs. Foremost among the animal people was unto me, the spider, the original troublemaker, who noted keenly the growth of the boy in wit and ingenuity, and presently advised the animals to make an end of him, for, said he, if you do not, someday he will be the master of us all. But they all loved the little boy man because he was so friendly and so playful. Only the monsters of the deep sea listened, and presently took his life, hiding his body in the bottom of the sea. Nevertheless, by the magic power of the firstborn, the body was recovered and was given life again in the sacred vapour bath, as described in a former chapter. Once more our first ancestor roamed happily among the animal people, who were in those days a powerful nation. He learned their ways and their language, for they had a common tongue in those days, learned to sing like the birds, to swim like the fishes, and to climb sure footed over rocks like the mountain sheep. Notwithstanding that he was the good comrade and did them no harm, unto me once more sowed dissension among the animals, and messages were sent into all quarters of the earth, sea, and air, that all the tribes might unite to declare war upon the solitary man who was destined to become their master. Oh. After a time the young man discovered the plot and came home very sorrowful. He loved his animal friends, and was grieved that they should combine against him. Besides, he was naked and unarmed. But his elder brother armed him with a bow and flint-headed arrows, a stone war club and a spear. He likewise tossed a pebble four times into the air, and each time it became a clear, full wall of rock about the teepee. Now, said he, it is time to fight and to assert your supremacy, for it is they who have brought the trouble upon you, and not you upon them. Night and day the little boy man remained upon the watch for his enemies from the top of the wall, and at last he beheld the prairies black with buffalo herds, and the elk gathering upon the edges of the forest. Bears and wolves were closing in from all directions, and now from the sky the thunder gave his fearful war whoop, answered by the wolf's long howl. The badgers and other burrowers began at once to undermine his rocky fortress while the climbers undertook to scale its perpendicular walls. Then for the first time on earth the bow was strung, and hundreds of flint-headed arrows found their mark in the bodies of the animals, while each time that the boy-man swung his stone war club, his enemies fell in countless numbers. Finally the insects, the little people of the air, attacked him in a body, filling his eyes and ears, and tormenting him with the poisoned spears, so that he was in despair. He called for help upon his elder brother, who ordered him to strike the rocks with his stone war club. As soon as he had done so, sparks of fire flew upon the dry grass of the prairie and it burst into flame. A mighty smoke ascended, which drove away the teasing swarms of the insect people, while the flames terrified and scattered the others. This was the first dividing of the trail between man and the animal people, and when the animals had sued for peace, the treaty provided that they must ever after furnish man with flesh for his food and skins for clothing, though not without effort and danger on his part. The little insects refused to make any concession, and have ever since been the tormentors of man, however, the birds of the air declared that they would punish him for their obstinacy, and this they continue to do unto this day. The sacred lock of hair, reincarnation and the converse of spirits, occult and psychic powers, the gift of prophecy. The attitude of the Indian toward death, the test and background of life, is entirely consistent with his character and philosophy. Death has no terrors for him. He meets it with simplicity and perfect calm, seeking only an honorable end as his last gift to his family and descendants. Therefore, he courts death in battle. On the other hand, he would regard it as disgraceful to be killed in a private quarrel. If one be dying at home, it is customary to carry his bed out of doors as the end approaches that his spirit may pass under the open sky. Next to this, the matter that concerns him most is the parting with his dear ones, especially if he have any little children who must be left behind to suffer want. His family affections are strong, and he grieves intensely for the lost, even though he has unbounded faith in a spiritual companionship. The outward signs of mourning for the dead are far more spontaneous and convincing than is the correct and well-ordered black of civilization. Men and women among us loosen their hair and cut it according to the degree of relationship or of devotion. Consistent with the idea of sacrificing all personal beauty and adornment, they trim off likewise from the dress its fringes and ornaments, perhaps cut it short, or cut the robe or blanket in two. The men blacken the faces, and widows or bereaved parents sometimes gash their arms and legs till they are covered with blood. Giving themselves up wholly to the grief, they are no longer concerned about any earthly possession, and often give away all that they have to the first comers, even to the beds in their home. Finally, the wailing for the dead is continued night and day to the point of utter voicelessness, a musical, weird, and heart-piercing sound, which has been compared to the keening of the Celtic mourner. The old-time burial of the Plains Indians was upon a scaffold of poles, or a platform among the boughs of a tree, their only means of placing the body out of reach of wild beasts, as they had no implements with which to dig a suitable grave.
0: My, it
5: was prepared by dressing in the finest clothes, together with some personal possessions and ornaments, wrapped in several oh, robes, sure and finally in a secure covering of raw hide. As a special mark of respect, the body of a young woman or a warrior was sometimes laid out in state in a new teepee, with the usual household articles and even with a dish of food left beside it, not that they supposed the spirit could use the implements or eat the food, but merely as a last tribute.
0: Then the whole people would
5: break camp and depart to a distance, leaving the dead alone in an honorable solitude. There was no prescribed ceremony of burial, though the body was carried out with more or less solemnity by selected young men, and sometimes noted warriors with a. poor. It was usual to choose a prominent with a commanding outlook for the last resting place of our dead. If a man was slain in battle, it was an old custom to place his body against a tree or rock in a sitting position, always facing the enemy, to indicate his undaunted defiance and bravery, even in death. I recall a touching custom among us which was designed to keep the memory of the departed near and warm in the bereaved household. A lock of hair of the beloved dead was wrapped in pretty clothing, such as it was supposed that he or she would like to wear if living. This spirit bundle, as it was called, was suspended from a tripod and occupied a certain place in the lodge which was the place of honor. At every mealtime, a dish of food was placed under it and some person of the same sex and age as the one who was gone must afterward be invited in to partake of the food. At the end of a year from the time of death, the relatives made a public feast and gave away the clothing and other gifts while the lock of hair was interred with appropriate ceremonies. Certainly the Indian never doubted the immortal nature of the spirit or soul of man, but neither did he care to speculate upon its probable state or condition in a future life. The idea of a happy hunting ground is modern and probably borrowed, or invented by the white man. The primitive Indian was content to believe that the spirit which the great mystery breeds into man returns to him who gave it, and that after it is freed from the body, it is everywhere and pervades all nature, yet often lingers near the grave or spirit bundle for the consolation of friends, and is able to hear prayers. So much of reverence was due the disembodied spirit, that it was not customary with us even to name the dead aloud. It is well known that the American Indian had somehow developed a cult power, and although in the latter days there have been many imposters, and, allowing for the vanity and weakness of human nature, it is fair to assume that there must have been some even in the old days, yet there are well-attested instances of remarkable prophecies and other mystic practice. A Sioux prophet predicted the coming of the white man fully 50 years before the event, and even described accurately his garments and weapons. Before the steamboat was invented, another prophet of our race described the fireboat that would swim upon the mighty river, the Mississippi, and the date of this prophecy is attested by the term used, which is long since obsolete. No doubt, many predictions have been colored to suit the new age, and unquestionably yeah. false prophets, for fakirs, and conjurers have become the pest of the tribes during the transition period. Nevertheless, even during this period there was here and there a man of the old type who was implicitly believed into to the last. Notable among these was Ta-Chang Piho or his war club Speaks Loud, who foretold a year in advance the details of a great war party against the Ojibwe's. There were to be seven battles, all successful except the last, in which the Sioux were to be taken at a disadvantage and suffer crushing defeat. This was carried out to the letter. Our people surprised and slew many of the Ojibwe's in their villages, but in turn were followed and cunningly led into an ambush whence but few came out alive. This was only one of his remarkable prophecies. Another famous medicine man was born on the Rum River about 150 years ago, and lived to be over a century old. He was born during a desperate battle with the Ojibwe's, at a moment when, as it seemed, the band of Sioux engaged were to be annihilated. Therefore the child's grandmother exclaimed, since we are all to perish, let him die a warrior's death in the field. And she placed his cradle under fire, near the spot where his uncle and grandfathers were fighting, for he had no father. But when an old man discovered the newborn child, he commanded the women to take care of him. For, said he, we know not how precious the strength of even one warrior may some day become to his nation.
3: I believe him. I'm going to be here for a while. Don't worry. I just hope you um, get to see your
1: grandkids
2: before you die. Does I'm happy if you don't have kids or not. I don't care if I have kids or grandkids or not. I'm still having kids. <laughs> okay, good. I just want you to be happy.
5: Death and funeral customs, the sacred lock of hair, reincarnation and the converse of spirits, occult and psychic powers, the gift of prophecy, the attitude of the Indian toward death, the test and background of life, is entirely consistent with his character and philosophy. Death has no terrors for him, he meets it with simplicity and perfect calm, seeking only an honorable end as his last gift to his family and descendants. Therefore, he courts death in battle, on the other hand, he would regard it as disgraceful to be killed in a private quarrel. If one be dying at home, it is customary to carry his bed out of doors as the end approaches, that his spirit may pass under the open sky. Next to this, the matter that concerns him most is the parting with his dear ones, especially if he have any little children who must be left behind to suffer want. His family affections are strong, and he grieves intensely for the lost, even though he has unbounded faith in a spiritual companionship. The outward signs of mourning for the dead are far more spontaneous and convincing than is the correct and well-ordered black of civilization. Men and women among us loosen their hair and cut it according to the degree of relationship or of devotion. Consistent with the idea of sacrificing all personal beauty and adornment, they trim off likewise and from the dresses, eyes, fringes and ornaments, perhaps, and perhaps cut it short, or cut the robe or blanket in two. The men blacken the faces, and widows or bereaved parents sometimes gash their arms and legs no. till they are covered with blood.
1: Giving themselves God, up wholly to the grief, they are no
5: longer concerned about any earthly possession, and often give away all that they have to the first comers, even to the beds in their home.
2: Finally, the wailing for the
5: dead is continued night and day to the point of utter voicelessness, a musical, weird, and heart-piercing sound, which has been compared to the keening of the Celtic mourner. No, no the old-time burial of the plains Indians was upon a scaffold of poles, or a platform among the boughs of a tree, their only means of placing the body out of reach of wild beasts, as they had no implements with which to dig a suitable grave. It was prepared by dressing in the finest clothes, together with some personal possessions and ornaments, wrapped in several robes, and finally in a secure covering of raw hide. As a special mark of respect, the body of a young woman or a warrior was sometimes laid out in state in a new teepee, with the usual household articles and even with a dish of food left beside it, not that they supposed the spirit could use the implements or eat the food but merely as a last tribute. Then the whole people would break camp and depart to a distance, leaving the dead alone in an honorable solitude.
0: There was no prescribed
5: ceremony of burial, though the body was carried out with more or less solemnity by selected young men, and sometimes noted warriors with the pallbearers of a man of distinction. It was usual to choose a prominent with a commanding outlook for the last resting place of our dead. If a man was slain in battle, it was an old custom to place his body against a tree or rock in a sitting position, always facing the enemy, to indicate his undaunted defiance and bravery, even in death. I recall a touching custom among us which was designed to keep the memory of the departed near and warm in the bereaved household. A lock of hair of the beloved dead was wrapped in pretty clothing, such as it was supposed that he or she would like to wear if living. This spirit bundle, as it was called, was suspended from a tripod and occupied a certain place in the lodge which was the place of honor.
4: At every meal time, a dish of
5: food was placed under it, and some person of the same sex and age as the one who was gone must would be invited in to partake of the food. At the end of a year from the time of death, the relatives made a public feast and gave away the clothing and other gifts while the lock of hair was interred with appropriate ceremonies. Certainly the Indian never doubted the immortal nature of the spirit or soul of man, but neither did he care to speculate upon its probable state or condition in a future life. The idea of a happy hunting ground is modern and probably borrowed, or invented by the white man.
3: I've never done that.
5: The primitive Indian was content to believe that the spirit which the great mystery breathes into man returns to him who gave it, and that after it is freed from the body, it is everywhere and pervades all nature, yet often lingers near the grave or spirit bundle for the consolation of friends, and is able to hear prayers. So much of reverence was due the disembodied spirit, that it was not customary with us even to name the dead aloud. It is well known that the American Indian had somehow developed a cult power, and although in the latter days there have been many imposters, and for the vanity and weakness of human nature, it is fair to assume that there must have been some even in the old days, yet there are well-attested instances of remarkable prophecies and other mystic practice.
2: A Sioux prophet predicted I'm the coming listening. of the
5: white man fully 50 years before the event, and even described accurately his garments yeah. and weapons. Oh. Before the steamboat was invented, another prophet of our race described the fireboat that would swim upon their mighty river, the Mississippi, and the date of this prophecy is attested by the term used, which is long since obsolete. No doubt, many predictions have been colored to suit the new age, and unquestionably false prophets, fakirs and conjurers have become the pest of the tribes during the transition period. Nevertheless, even during this period there was here and there a man of the old type who was implicitly believed into the last. Notable among these was Chang Piho Tanke, or his war club Speaks Loud, who foretold a year in advance the details of a great war party against the Ojibways. There were to be seven battles, all successful except the last, in which the Sioux were to be taken at a disadvantage and suffer crushing defeat. This was carried out to the letter. Our people surprised and slew many of the Ojibwe's in their villages but in turn were followed and cunningly led into an ambush whence but few came out alive. This was only one of his remarkable prophecies. Another famous medicine man was born on the Rum River about 150 years ago and lived to be over a century old. He was born during a desperate battle no, with the Ojibways no, no, no. at a moment when, as it seemed, the band of Sioux engaged no, no, no. were to be annihilated. Therefore the child's grandmother exclaimed, since we are all to perish, let him die a warrior's death in the field and she placed his cradle under fire, near the spot where his uncle and grandfathers were fighting, for he had no father. When but when an old man back? discovered the newborn child, he commanded the women to take care of him, for, said he, we know not how precious the strength of even one warrior may some day become to his nation. The He's
2: happy he did that? Yeah. Why? Well, Americans, know the president sold America. This really belongs to Native American man. This really belongs to Native American? Yes. That's what I believe. It don't
3: belong to Bush. It, don't belong to it was kinda
2: It was kinda stolen from him. It was stolen from the Native American. How did they stole? They stole it. They were powered and they had guns. They
3: overpowered.
2: I've studied a lot more. They've over.
5: Alaska, Hawaii, and the mainland of the United States. Different tribes and cultures lived in different areas. In the middle of the country lived the Plains Indians, including tribes such as the Comanche and Arapaho. In the southeast area of the country lived tribes such as the Cherokee and the Seminole. The first people to live in a land are called Indigenous Peoples. Based in historical map where Native Americans lived, we will try to find your tribe. No text found Encyclopedia of Native American Tribes. No text found at that location. Screen one of five settings. stations old indian legends (coughs) contents preface ictomy and the ducks ictomy's blanket ictomy and the muskrat ictomy and the coyote ictomy and the fawn the badger and the bear the tree bound these legends are relics of our country's once virgin soil these and many others are the tales the little black-haired Aborigine loves so much to hear beside the night fire. For him the personified elements and other spirits played in a vast world right around the centre fire of the wigwam. Ictomy, the snare weaver, Ea, the eater, and old double-face are not wholly fanciful creatures. There were other worlds of legendary folk for the young Aborigine, such as the star men of the sky, the thunderbirds blinking zigzag lightning, and the mysterious spirits of trees and flowers. Under an open sky, nestling close to the earth, the old Dakota storytellers have told me these legends. In both Dakotas, north and south, I have often listened to the same story told over again by a new storyteller. While I recognized such a legend without the least difficulty, I found the renderings varying much in little incidents. Generally one helped the other in restoring some lost link in the original character of the tale. And now I have tried to transplant the native spirit of these tales, root and all, into the English language, since America in the last few centuries has acquired a second tongue. The old legends of America belong quite as much to the blue-eyed little patriot as to the black-haired Aborigine. And when they are grown tall like the wise grown-ups may they not lack interest in a further study of Indian folklore, a study which so strongly suggests our near kinship with the rest of humanity and points a steady finger toward the great brotherhood of mankind, and by which one is so forcibly impressed with the possible earnestness of life as seen through the teepee door. If it be true that much lies in the eye of the beholder, then in the American Aborigine as in any other race, sincerity of belief, though it were based upon mere optical illusion, demands a little respect. After all he seems at heart much like other peoples. Said ITKALASA. (sighs) I-K-T-O-M-I is a spider fairy He wears brown deerskin leggings with long soft fringes on either side and tiny beaded moccasins on his feet His long black hair is parted in the middle and wrapped with red, red bands Each round braid hangs over a small brown ear and falls forward over his shoulders (coughs) He even paints his funny face with red and yellow and draws big black rings around his eyes He wears a deerskin jacket with bright coloured beads sewed tightly on it Iktomi dresses like a real Dakota Brave In truth, his paint and deerskins are the best part of him if ever dress is part of man or fairy Iktomi is a wily fellow his hands are always kept in mischief. He prefers to spread a snare rather than to earn the smallest thing with honest hunting. Why? He laughs outright with wide open mouth when some simple folk are caught in a trap, sure and fast. He never dreams another life so bright as he. Often his own conceit leads him hard against the common sense of simpler people. me cannot help being a little imp. And so long as he is a naughty fairy, he cannot find a single friend. No one helps him when he is in trouble. No one really loves him. Those who come to admire his handsome beaded jacket and long fringe leggings soon go away sick and tired of his vain, vain words and heartless laughter. Thus me lives alone in a cone-shaped wigwam upon the plain. One day he sat hungry within his teepee. Suddenly he rushed out, dragging after him his blanket. Quickly spreading it on the ground, he tore up dry tall grass with both his hands and tossed it fast into the blanket. Tying all the four corners together in a knot, he threw the light bundle of grass over his shoulder. Snatching up a slender willow stick with his free left hand, he started off with a hop and a leap. From side to side bounced the bundle on his back, as he ran light-footed over the uneven ground. Soon he came to the edge of the great level land. On the hilltop he paused for breath with wicked smacks of his dry parched lips, as if tasting some tender meat, he looked straight into space toward the marshy river bottom. With a thin palm shading his eyes from the western sun, he peered far away into the lowlands, munching his own cheeks all the while. Aha! Grunted he, satisfied with what he saw. A group of wild ducks were dancing and feasting in the marshes. With wings outspread, tip to tip, they moved up and down in a large circle. Within the ring, around a small drum, sat the chosen singers, nodding their heads and blinking their eyes. They sang in unison a merry dance song, and beat a lively tattoo on the drum. Following a winding footpath nearby came a bent figure of a Dakota Brave. He bore on his back a very large bundle. With a willow cane he propped himself up as he staggered along beneath his burden. Ho, who is there? Called out a curious old duck, still bobbing up and down in the circular dance. Hereupon the drummers stretched the next till they strangled the song for a look at the stranger passing by. Ho, It to me. Old fellow, pray tell us what you carry in your blanket. Do not hurry off. Stop. Halt. Urged one of the singers. Stop. Stay. Show us what is in your blanket. Cried out other voices. My friends, I must not spoil your dance. Oh, you would not care to see if you only knew what is in my blanket. Sing on. Dance on. I must not show you what I carry on my back, answered Ictomy, nudging his own sides with his elbows. This reply broke up the ring entirely. Now all the ducks crowded about Ictomy. We must see what you carry. We must know what is in your blanket. They shouted in both his ears. Some even brushed their wings against the mysterious bundle. Nudging himself again, to Ictomy said, My friends, tea is only a pack of songs I carry in my blanket. Oh, then let us hear your songs, cried the curious ducks. At length Ictomy consented to sing his songs. With delight all the ducks flapped their wings and cried together, Hoi! Hoi! Ictomi, with great care, laid down his bundle on the ground. I will build first a round straw house, for I never sing my songs in the open air, said he. Quickly he bent green willow sticks, planting both ends of each pole into the earth. These he covered thick with reeds and grasses. Soon the straw hut was ready. One by one the fat ducks waddled in through a small opening, which was the only entrance way. Beside the door Ictomy stood smiling, as the ducks, eyeing his bundle of songs, strutted into the hut. In a strange low voice Ictomi began his queer old tunes. All the ducks sat round eyed in a circle about the mysterious singer. It was dim in that straw hut, for Iktomi had not forgot to cover up the small entrance way. All of a sudden, his song burst into full voice. As the startled ducks sat uneasily on the ground, Iktomi changed his tune into a minor strain. These were the words he sang. Is dogmaswasapo, and kinanista nisasapi kta, which is with eyes closed you must dance. He who dares to open his eyes, forever red eyes shall have. Up rose the circle of seated ducks, and holding their wings close against the sides, began to dance to the rhythm of Iktomi's song and drum. With eyes closed they did dance. Ictomy ceased to beat his drum. He began to sing louder and faster. He seemed to be moving about in the center of the ring. No duck dared blink a wink. Each one shut his eyes very tight and danced even harder. Up and down. Shifting to the right of them they hopped round and round in that blind dance. It was a difficult dance for the curious folk. At length one of the dancers could close his eyes no longer. It was a skisker who peeped the least tiny blink at Ictomy within the center of the circle. Oh, oh, squawked he in awful terror. Run, fly. Ictomy is twisting your heads and breaking your necks. Run out and fly, fly, he cried. Hereupon the ducks opened their eyes. There beside Ictomy's bundle of songs lay half of the crowd, flat on the backs. Out they flew through the openings the had made as he rushed forth with his alarm. But as they soared high into the blue sky they cried to one another, Oh, your eyes are red-red, and yours are red-red. For the warning words of the magic minor strain had proven true. Aha! Uh-huh. Laughed Ictomy, untying the four corners of his blanket, I shall sit no more hungry within my dwelling. Homeward he trudged along with nice fat ducks in his blanket. He left a little straw hut for the rains and winds to pull down. Having reached his own teepee on the high-level lands, Iktomi kindled a large fire out of doors. He planted sharp-pointed sticks around the leaping flames. On each a few he buried under the ashes to bake. Disappearing within his teepee, he came out again with some huge seashells. Placing one under each roasting duck, he muttered, The sweet fat oozing out will taste well with the hard-cooked breasts. Heaping more willows upon the fire, Iktomi sat down on the ground with crossed shins. A long chin between his knees pointed toward the red flames, while his eyes were on the browning ducks. Just above his ankles he clasped and unclasped his long bony fingers. Now and then he sniffed impatiently the savoury odour. The brisk wind which stirred the fire also played with a squeaky old tree beside Ictomy's wigwam. By Walter Huff, Curator, Division of Ethnology, United States National Museum. Washington, D.C. Contents. Highlights. The Hopi Indians. Contents. Preface. I. The Country, Towns, and Peoples. Two. Social Life. Three. Food and Rearing. I. V. The Workers. V. Amusements. VI Birth, Marriage, and Death. Seven. Religious Life. Eight. Myths. I. X. Traditions and History. X. Brief Biographies. The Hopi Indians. Search. Configuration. 7. Religious Life. The chief feature attracting popular interest to the Hopi is the number and remarkable character of the ceremonies. These dances, as they are usually called, seem to be going on with little intermission. Every Hopi is touched by some one of the numerous ceremonies and nearly every able-bodied inhabitant of the seven towns takes an active part during the year. The Flute Ceremony, which alternates with the Snake Antelope Ceremony, is most pleasing and interesting. Visitors to Hopeland in August of the proper year are always charmed with the dramatic performance and beautiful songs of the Flute Society. The Hopi Indians The Hopi Indians Search. Configuration. By Walter Huff. Curator Division of Ethnology, United States National Museum. Washington, D.C. Publishers Device. Cedar Rapids, Iowa. The Torch Press, 1915. The southwest has always been a storied land to its native dwellers. Mountain profile, sweeper plain, cardal mesa, deep canyon, cave, lava stream, level lake bed, painted desert, river shore, spring and <coughs> forest are theirs in intimacy, and around them have gathered legends which are bits of ancient history, together with multitude of myths of nature deities reaching back into the misty beginning. PG 251. The white men who tracked across the vast stretches of the great American desert, no doubt saw ruined towns sown over the waste, and perhaps believed and lost to history, little suspecting that within reach lived dusky-hued men, to whom these pots heard strewn mounds and crumbling walls were no sealed book. The newer explorers have drawn the old world stories from the lips of living traditionists, and by the friendly aid have gathered the clues which, when joined, will throw a flood of light on the wanderings of the ancient people. Through them it has been learned that each pueblo preserves with faithful care the history of its beginnings and the wanderings of its clans. This at proper times the old men repeat and the story often takes a poetical form chanted with great effect in the ceremonies. As an example of these interesting myths, one should read the Zuni Ritual of Creation, that saga of the Americans which reveals a beauty and depth of thought and form surprising to those who have a limited view of the ability of the Indian.
3: Yeah, that's bullshit. <clears throat>
5: Z-E-X-I-C-A Apps built the Z-E-X-I-C-A Apps app as a free app. This service is... They are the words of my master. How is it that you... Does it matter very much who a master or a guru is? What matters is life not. Kriya Yoga. He is seen by a pure heart and by a mind whose thoughts are pure. Dot dot dot. When all desires that cling to the heart are surrendered, then a mortal becomes a mortal, and even in this world, he is one with Brahman. king of saints was Jayanashwa 1271-1293, who, while living only 22 years, made an indelible mark on the whole of Hindu spirituality. Before Jayanashwa's time, the scriptures of India were in the secret language of Sanskrit and completely unavailable to the lower classes. Breaking from tradition, Jayanashwa not only translated the central Sanskrit text, the Bhagavad Sita, into the common language of Marathi but added a magnificent commentary which expounds the complete path of yoga and spiritual practice. His commentary, the Jayanashwari, still stands among the greatest spiritual works ever written. The history of Native Americans in the United States began in ancient times tens of thousands of years ago with the settlement of the Americas by the Paleo-Indians. Anthropologists and archaeologists have identified and studied a wide variety of cultures that existed during this era. The subsequent contact with Europeans had a profound impact on their history of the people. <laughs> Ugh! <sighs> is a great island floating in a sea of water and suspended at each of the four cardinal points by a cord hanging down from the sky vault which is of solid rock. When the world grows old and worn out the people will die and the cords will break and let the earth sink down into the ocean and all will be water again. The Indians are afraid of this. When all was water the animals were above in Galinalati beyond the arch but it was very much crowded and they were wanting more room. They wondered what was below the water and at last Dione, Beaver's grandchild, the little water beetle, offered to go and see if it could learn. It darted in every direction over the surface of the water but could find no firm place to rest. Then it dived to the bottom and came up with some soft mud, which began to grow and spread on every side until it became the island which we call the earth. It was afterward fastened to the sky with four cords but no one remembers who did this. At first the earth was flat and very soft and wet. (coughs) The animals were anxious to get down, and sent out different birds to see if it was yet dry, but they found no place to alight and came back again to Galinalati. At last it seemed to be time, and they sent out the buzzard and told him to go and make ready for them. This was the great buzzard, the father of all the buzzards we see now. He flew all over the earth, low down near the ground, and it was still soft. When he reached the Cherokee country, he was very tired, and his wings began to flap and strike the ground, and wherever they struck the earth there was a valley, and where they turned up again there was a mountain. When the animals above saw this, they were afraid that the whole world would be mountains, so they called him back, but the Cherokee country remains full of mountains to this day. When the earth was dry and the animals came down, it was still dark, so they got the sun and set it in a track to go every day across the island from east to west just overhead it was too hot this way, and Siskegili, the red crawfish, had his shell scorched a bright red, so that his meat was spoiled, and the Cherokee do not eat it. <coughs> the conjurers put the sun another hand higher in the air, but it was still too hot. They raised it another time, and another, until it was seven handbreadths high and just under the sky arch. Then it was right, and they left it so. This is why the conjurers called the highest place Gulquajin digalinalartiyun, the seventh height, because it is seven handbreadths above the earth. Every day the sun goes along under this arch, and returns at night on the upper side to the starting place. There is another world under this, and it is like ours in everything. Animals, plants, and people say that the seasons are different. The streams that come down from the mountains are the trails by which we reach this underworld, and the springs at their heads are the doorways by which we enter it, but to do this one must fast and go to water and have one of the underground people for a guide. We know that the seasons in the underworld are different from ours, because the water in the springs is always warmer in winter and cooler in summer than the outer air. When the animals and plants were first made, we do not know by whom they were told to watch and keep awake for seven nights, just as young men now fast and keep awake when they pray to their medicine. They tried to do this, and nearly all were awake through the first night, but the next night several dropped off to sleep, and the third night others were asleep, and then others, until, on the seventh night, of all the animals only the owl, the panther, and one or two more were still awake. To these were given the power to see and to go about in the dark, and to make prey of the birds and animals which must sleep at night. Of the trees only the cedar, the pine, the spruce, the holly, and the laurel were awake to the end, and to them it was given to be always green and to be greatest for medicine, but to the others it was said, Because you have not endured to the end, you shall lose your hair every winter. Men came after well, the animals
3: know and ploughed. Plum-
5: in seven days a child was born to her
1: and thereafter every seven days another and they increased very
3: fast until there was danger to that the world to the could not
1: keep them between two and five tomorrow um to pick up his bag
3: of things and mm-hmm. to
1: return anything <clears> hi <throat> <he> <clears throat> <throat> so mr cox it's katie frederickson Ansel teacher i was just calling to remind you that one of you needs to go to the school between two and five tomorrow um to pick up his bag of things and to return anything that he might have if he still has a library book he'll need to bring that and return that but they'll be there from two o'clock to five o'clock tomorrow and tomorrow's the last day to pick up so please make sure somebody goes and gets his stuff thank you
0: Oh, you need to go to pick up
1: something
5: and we need to find some
0: book for everyone else yeah see
5: the earth is a great island floating in a sea of water, and suspended at each of the four cardinal points by a cord hanging down from the sky vault, which is of solid rock. When the world grows old and worn out, the people will die and the cords will break and let the earth sink down into the ocean, and all will be water again. The Indians are afraid of this. When all was water, the animals were above in Galinalati, beyond the arch, but it was very much crowded, and they were wanting more room. They wondered what was below the water, and at last Dione, Beaver's grandchild, the little water beetle, offered to go and see if it could learn. It darted in every direction over the surface of the water, but could find no firm place to rest. Then it dived to the bottom and came up with some soft mud, which began to grow and spread on every side until it became the island which we call the earth. It was afterward fastened to the sky with four cords, but no one remembers who did this. At first the earth was flat and very soft and wet. The animals were anxious to get down, and sent out different birds to see if it was yet dry, but they found no place to alight and came back again to Galinalati. At last it seemed to be time, and they sent out the buzzard and told him to go and make ready for them. This was the great buzzard, the father of all the buzzards we see now. He flew all over the earth, low down near the ground, and it was still soft. When he reached the Cherokee country, he was very tired, and his wings began to flap and strike the ground, and wherever they struck the earth there was a valley, and where they turned up again there was a mountain. When the animals above saw this, they were afraid that the whole world would be mountains, so they called him back, but the Cherokee country remains full of mountains to this day. When the earth was dry and the animals came down, it was still dark, so they got the sun and set it in a track to go every day across the island from east to west, just overhead. It was too hot this way, and Siskegili, the red crawfish, had his shell scorched a bright red, so that his meat was spoiled, and the Cherokee do not eat it. The conjurers put the sun another hand breadth higher in the air, but it was still too hot. They raised it another time, and another, until it was seven handbreadths high and just under the sky arch. Then it was right, and they left it so. This is why the conjurers call the highest place Gulquajin digalinalartian, the seventh height, because it is seven handbreadths above the earth. Every day the sun goes along under this arch, and returns at night on the upper side to the starting place. There is another world under this, and it is like ours in everything animals, plants, and people save that the seasons are different. The streams that come down from the mountains are the trails by which we reach this underworld, and the springs at their heads are the doorways by which we enter it, but to do this one must fast and go to water and have one of the underground people for a guide. We know that the seasons in the underworld are different from ours because the water in the springs is always warmer in winter and cooler in summer than the outer air. When the animals and plants were first made we do not know by whom they were told to watch and keep awake for seven nights just as young men now fast and keep awake when they pray to their medicine. They tried to do this and nearly all were awake through the first night but the next night several dropped off to sleep and the third night others were asleep and then others until on the seventh night of all the animals only the owl, the panther and one or two more were still awake. To these were given the power to see and to go about in the dark and to make prey of the birds and animals which must sleep at night. Of the trees only the cedar, the pine, the spruce, the holly, and the laurel were awake to the end, and to them it was given to be always green and to be greatest for medicine. But to the others it was said, because you have not endured to the end you shall lose your hair every winter. Men came after the animals and plants. At first there were only a brother and sister until he struck her with a fish and told her to multiply, and so it was. In seven days a child was born to her, and thereafter every seven days another, and they increased very fast until there was danger that the world could not keep them. Then it was made that a woman should have only one child in a year, and it has been so ever since. At the beginning there was no fire, and the world was cold, until the thunders, A.N.I. I, who lived up in Galinalati, sent their lightning and put fire into the bottom of a hollow sycamore tree which grew on an island. The animals knew it was there, because they could see the smoke coming out of the top, but they could not get to it on account of the water, so they held a council to decide what to do. This was a long time ago. Riot. Every animal that could fly or swim was to go after the fire. The raven offered, and because he was so large and strong they thought he could surely do the work, so he was sent first. He flew high and far across the water and alighted on a sycamore tree, but while he was wondering what to do next, the heat had scorched all his feathers black, and he was frightened and came back without the fire. The little screech owl, Wahoohoo, volunteered to go, and reach the place safely, but while he was looking down into the hollow tree a blast of hot air came up and nearly burned out his eaves. He managed to fly home as best he could, but it was a long time before he could see well, and his eyes are red to this day. Then the hooting owl, Yukugu, and the horned owl, Skilly, went, but by the time they got to the hollow tree the fire was burning so fiercely that the smoke nearly blinded them, and the ashes carried up by the wind made white rings about their eyes. They had to come home again without the fire, but with all their rubbing they were never able to get rid of the white rings. Now no more of the birds would venture, and so the little he snake, the black racer, said he would go through the water and bring back some fire. He swam across to the island and crawled through the grass to the tree, and went in by a small hole at the bottom. The heat and smoke were too much for him, too, and after dodging about blindly over the hot ashes until he was almost on fire himself he managed by good luck to get out again at the same hole, but his body had been scorched black, and he has ever since had the habit of darting and doubling on his track as if trying to escape from close quarters. He came back, and the great black snake, Gulegi, the climber, offered to go for fire. He swam over to the island and climbed up the tree on the outside, as the black snake always does, but when he put his head down into the hole the smoke choked him so that he fell into the burning stump, and before he could climb out again he was as black as the Ukjohi. Now they held another council, for still there was no fire, and the world was cold, but birds, snakes, and four-footed animals all had some excuse for not going, because they were all afraid to venture near the burning sycamore, until at last Kananskia Maiehi, the water spider, said she would go. This is not the water spider that looks like a mosquito, but the other one, with black downy hair and red stripes on her body. She can run on top of the water or dive to the bottom, so there would be no trouble to get over to the island, but the question was, how could she bring back the fire? I'll manage that, said the water spider, so she spun a thread from her body and wove it into a tusty bowl, which she fastened on her back. Then she crossed over to the island and threw the grass to where the fire was still burning. She put one little coal of fire into her bowl, and came back with it, and ever since we have had fire, and the water spider still keeps her tusty bowl. The earth is a great island floating in a sea of water, and suspended at each of the four cardinal points by a cord hanging down from the sky vault, which is of solid rock. When the world grows old and worn out, the people will die and the cords will break and let the earth sink down into the ocean. When I was a boy, this is what the old men told me they had heard when they were boys. Long years ago, soon after the world was made, a hunter and his wife lived a pilot knot with their only child, a little boy. The father's name was Kanati, the lucky hunter, and his wife was called Selukorn. No matter when Kanati went into the wood, he never failed to bring back a load of game, which his wife would cut up and repair, washing off the blood from the meat in the river near the house. The little boy used to play down by the river every day, and one morning the old people thought they heard laughing and talking in the bushes as though there were two children there. When the boy came home at night his parents asked him who had been playing with him all day. He comes out of the water, said the boy, and he calls himself my elder brother. He says his mother was cruel to him and threw him into the river. Then they knew that the strange boy had sprung from the blood of the game which Selu had washed off at the river's edge every day when the little boy went out to play the other would join him but as he always went back again into the water the old people never had a chance to see him at last one evening Kennedy said to his son tomorrow when the other boy comes to play get him to wrestle with you and when you have your arms around him hold on to him and call for us the boy promised to do as he was told so the next day as soon as his playmate appeared he challenged him to a wrestling match the other agreed at once but as soon as they had their arms around each other Kennedy's boy began to scream for his father the old folks at once came running down and as soon as the wild boy saw them he struggled to free himself and cried out let me go you threw me away But his brother held on until the parents reached the spot when they seized the wild boy and took him home with them. They kept him in the house until they had tamed him, but he was always wild and artful in his disposition, and was the leader of...